Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Skip. And I'm Mel, and today we are thrilled to have Ron Klain with us. Ron Klain is Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Revolution LLC, an investment firm based in Washington, D.C. He has worked on seven presidential campaigns, serving as a top debate preparation advisor to Presidents Obama and Clinton and Democratic presidential nominees Al Gore, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton. From 2014 to 2015, he served as Ebola Response Coordinator in the Obama White House, and he has also served as Chief of Staff to Vice Presidents Joe Biden and Al Gore. Thank you so much for joining us, Ron. Thanks for having me. So one of the topics we always like to ask our guests is this concept of inflection points or points where you had to pivot in your personal or professional life. Um, could you share with us a point or two? Sure. I mean, I think two um, uh, in my career that really stand out in my mind. Uh, first was my work on the recount, uh, the Bush v. Gore case, the way we handled the disputed election in 2000. And, um, uh, you know, the election, we knew the election was going to be very, very close. No one knew quite how close. And what we really didn't expect was for the first time since 1876 uh, in the year 2000, we would have an unclear outcome and had resort to all kinds of post-election procedures. We spent 36 days in Florida uh, fighting over that. Uh, ultimately, the U.S. Supreme Court decided in a controversial 5-4 decision to end the counting of ballots and to, in essence, make George Bush uh, the president of the United States. And I think for me, that was a real uh, turning point in terms of uh, my understanding of the relationship between law and politics and the uh, role that the Supreme Court plays in our society. Uh, second turning point, more recently, um, uh, uh, you know, is, uh, as Mel mentioned in the introduction, my work as the Ebola Response Coordinator in 2014, 2015. I went into that without a lot of awareness of how global health security works and uh, have since uh, serving in that role have become very active in the movement, very active in working on global health security, and very focused on uh, the dangers we face as a planet uh, and the need for action to uh, make uh, the world safer from the kind of threats uh, we face from uh, new and reemerging infectious diseases. So going back a little a little further and more yeah. around the 2000 era, the, uh, I read an article from 1994 profiling you in the New Republic um, called The Kids Are All Right. And uh, it's one of the most interesting political think pieces I've read. And it kind of laid out a dichotomy between political operatives, which the article characterized you and other Stephanopolites as, um, and more of an ideological uh, crusader or like social justice warrior type of politician. And I'm curious whether you think, first of all, if that's an act accurate characterization of you and whether you think that there's a place in politics for both the ideological fighters and the political operatives, how you decided to veer toward one side or the other. Yeah, so um, I don't agree with the premise of the piece and don't agree with its characterization of myself or the others in the piece in the way uh, in the way we were. And ultimately, by the way, I should just say the woman who wrote it wound up getting fired for plagiarizing large parts of the piece. Mm. Uh, so I don't think it's a piece that's held up that well. But what, I, what I'd say is I've always been someone who uh, saw himself as an activist uh, working within the system, and someone who believes in social change, uh, but social change from the outside. I definitely have spent more of my career in government, a little less on the less on the streets, uh, more as a, uh, a, a kind of someone who helps work the system as opposed to maybe someone who's trying to uh, uh, fight or resist the system. But I do think that that's an important element of social change. I do think that politics and policy are meshed. And uh, it's important to try to uh, achieve change uh, by using the levers of power uh, to make that change. 
uh, whether that's uh, more just economic policies, uh, more uh, fair social policies, uh, all those things uh, really matter to me. That's why I got involved in politics. That's why I continue to go in and out of government. And so I think the dichotomy is a false one. And I think that um, it's, uh, it's, imp- it's always been important to me to know why I'm in government and what I'm trying to get done uh, when I'm in government. Perhaps, perhaps one of those motivations might have come from Robert F. Kennedy, who uh, you mentioned in one interview when you were seven years old, uh, yeah. you got to see him speak. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of like the first thing that really turned you on to politics. How do you think kind of that Kennedy-esque vision of, of a, a liberal America, maybe a, you know, a new frontier or something like that, is that, how much does that inform your political understanding and maybe has, has inspired you to do the work you've done? Well, as you said, Skip, when I was uh, seven uh, in 1968, we had a disputed Democratic nomination contest. Uh, Indiana, my home state, was a key battleground in that um, effort, and uh, Bobby Kennedy came to campaign there many times. Uh, I met him on one of those uh, campaign stops, and it really did inspire me uh, to be involved in politics. On one of his later stops, he was in Indianapolis uh, the night after, the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated and gave a very famous speech where uh, he talked about uh, hatred and healing, about the violence his family had experienced, about uh, things that should transcend racial lines. And as a result, on the night Martin Luther King was assassinated, there were riots all over the country. In Indianapolis, Indiana, we didn't have riots, and uh, the city was spared that kind of violence. And what I took from that was that uh, political rhetoric, uh, political themes, uh, political messaging can really change the world, change how people see the world, change how people understand the world. And so... That's really inspired me throughout my career uh, to be very aware of the importance of uh, politics and campaigning, not just for winning elections, but for changing hearts and changing minds and laying a groundwork for action. And I think that's what Bobby Kennedy represented to me and what uh, his memory still represents to me. Going off that idea of political power in messaging and in rhetoric, um, one of the conversations that I saw you had at Georgetown about ethics and policy actually turned a lot more toward the character of politicians. And it was talking with Kevin Spacey about his character, Frank Underwood, and an even more rare topic in politics, Richard III from Shakespeare, Shakespeare's play, and the idea that they had these consciences that were very difficult to kind of interpret from the citizen side of things. And I'm curious, after so many years in politics, working with a whole range of people, especially Vice President Biden, who's known for having such an authentic character and true passion for his policies, whether you've learned tactics or strategies to kind of parse out the genuine politician from someone who is less authentic and leaning on party or ideology. Yeah, I think um, it's very important uh, I think one of the key themes of that conversation, one of the key themes of great drama about politics, whether it be uh, House of Cards uh, in the popular culture setting or Richard III in a classic setting, is the classic question of ends and means. When do the ends justify the means? What means are permanently off the table? And um, I think that's a great question in political drama. It's a greater question in political and policy practice. How far will you go? What norms are important uh, in the work on campaigns, on legislation, on policy initiatives? And um, it's constantly a struggle and constantly a set of choices. I think in our country today, we've kind of gone to almost total warfare politics, virtually any means to achieve 
the ends. And I think that's unfortunate and ultimately corrosive of our democratic process and our democratic institutions. Uh, but I think it's a conversation we always have to have. It's a hard one. Uh, I think um, you can read Machiavelli if you like, or you can watch reruns of the West Wing TV show if you like. But all of them deal with this same moral and political question, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I think it's the most important question uh, in politics. How have you seen different administrations that you've obviously served in? How have you seen uh, each, each of the figures in those, not just you know the president or anything like that, but how have you seen staff kind of grapple with that? Well, I think you see people grapple with it all the time as they decide uh, how far are they going to push uh, a policy initiative, how much... Um, how hardball will they play? Mm-hmm. What kinds of uh, offers, carrots and sticks, right. are they prepared to put on the table? What are they prepared to trade? Uh, uh, you know, uh, again, sticking with popular culture, a great movie, The American President, with Michael Douglas as the president. Right in the end, uh, he he trades uh, climate change to get a gun control bill passed. And uh, you know, and and uh, Annette Bening, who plays his girlfriend, ultimately his his wife. Uh, you know, is is horrified by this, and you know, but 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 again, these are the choices. These are the real world choices that people have to make, and um, and uh, I think that's uh, always an important thing. I teach undergraduates at Georgetown. I teach also this semester at Harvard Law School, and I tell people all the time that these ethical decisions uh, walk into your office every day when you serve in the government, when you work in political campaigns. They don't really come announced. They don't really come with a big banner wrapped around mm-hmm. them. Uh, and you have to be prepared uh, to make those choices. Kind of shifting gears a little bit. Um, one of the things you're, you're best known for is uh, uh, you and your partner, Karen Dunn, serve as the kind of presidential debate prep uh, masters. Politico called you two uh, the most experienced debate prep specialist in democratic politics. And kind of every four years, it's just known that, you know, Ron Klain and uh, Karen Dunn are going to be working with whoever whoever the kind of nominee is. First of all, like, how did you get into that? And also, like, what, what do you bring to the table specifically? Obviously, it's especially tricky if you've got someone like President Obama. How are you, you know, you're supposed to challenge President Obama or, or critique, critique a sitting president. That, that's a fascinating, fascinating subject. Yeah, so I started working on debate prep in 1992 when President Bill Clinton ran, and I was a junior person. So policy staffer on the campaign, and uh, they needed someone to kind of uh, be in charge of the policy aspects of debate prep, and my number came up, and I did it. And, you know, just ever since then, I've kind of built on it and ultimately – First uh, coordinated overall debate prep in 2004 for Senator Kerry, and then again in 2008, 2012, 2016. And um, I guess what I bring to it now is a lot of experience right. uh, and a knowledge of having seen what works and what doesn't work. Um, but you know, one thing I've often brought is uh, in most of the recent campaigns, I haven't otherwise been involved in the campaign. That is, I really take over debate prep as something – uh, separate from any other role in the campaign. And I think that's an important thing. Uh, I think it's a useful thing because I don't have necessarily the all the biases and all the history that people inside the campaign have. I bring a fresh perspective to the debate prep. And, I, um, uh, and I'm single-mindedly focused on getting the candidates ready for their debates. And I think that's an important thing. And, uh, and then uh, prepared to deal with the fallout in 2012. Some people may remember uh, President Obama lost the first debate and lost it kind of badly, and I offered to resign. And I think one thing about having an outside debate prep advisor is you can kind of throw them off the train, and, and you don't lose any of the rest of your senior staff, and it's all good. And President Obama very graciously said, look, 
you know, it was really my fault, and, you know, I need you, and stay here, and, and we got it fixed, and we won the second and third debates, and ultimately he got reelected. So, uh, you know, I think I love the topic of presidential debates because uh, they really take everything in a campaign and telescope them with kind of an Aristotelian unity of time, place, and action. Uh, it's all there in 90 minutes of uh, confrontation. It's the one time when both candidates for president stand on a stage together, 10 feet apart. Uh, the voters get to see them side by side, make a comparative judgment. Uh, and uh, it's a great mix of political argumentation and politics uh, and strategy uh, and tactics and I think a really interesting moment in our democracy. It's also, I should say, the a unique American uh, democratic export. Most of our democratic forms in our country, we imported from other countries. We didn't invent voting in America. We didn't invent political parties. We didn't invent the presidency. There are some things we invented in America, like the Electoral College that no one else wants. Um, <laughs> but we did invent the idea of televised head-to-head contests between the top candidates for the nation's highest office in 1960, the first people in the world to do it. And now 44 democracies around the world have these kinds of contests. So it's a really interesting political institution invented in the United States and now increasingly becoming a standard of democratic practice around the world. And to touch on one other aspect outside of your maybe day job, so to speak, with revolution that is a political element you still stay involved with, I'm always curious when um, people from such successful professional backgrounds choose to write uh, columns for yeah. the Washington Post or wherever it is. And, and I'm curious what motivates you. Is it a greater message or, or just a genuine interest in writing and sharing your thoughts that makes you want to be a columnist outside of your other obligations? Yeah, so I, I've always enjoyed writing. And... Um, uh, and uh, have views that I guess for whatever reason, whether it's ego or compulsion, want to see them out there in front of a big audience. And uh, the Post was kind enough to give me an opportunity to have that. I think the hardest thing about writing in today's world is finding an audience. And uh, I used to just write things and spend a lot of time trying to find people to publish them. And uh, getting a column with the Post means I know where my stuff's going to appear, and I don't spend a lot of time marketing it, uh, and that's been a really great thing. Uh, it's a challenge uh, to, to know that every two weeks I owe them one of these things, and uh, you know, and to, you know, try to make them interesting and different. Uh, but I really have enjoyed the experience and really um, enjoy the work. In, awesome. in addition to that uh, kind of ability to, to affect the public dialogue, you've also come from the inside uh, at every every branch of government, which I think is absolutely fascinating. That you've worked in high levels in the executive branch, high levels in the judicial branch, uh, clerking for Justice White, and also uh, uh, in the legislative branch on the Judiciary Committee. Which which role or which branch did you find you felt? And obviously, it depends from position to position. But which which branch did you feel most empowered to affect change and affect the dialogue, affect affect uh, affect the government? Well, you know, it's, it's obviously very different, and and in some ways, the junior most role. Uh, as a law clerk, you have no real authority. You write memos and draft things, and uh, your justice ultimately decides. But it's an amazing experience to work with someone really directly in a very small office for Supreme Court justice. Really, a you know experience of a lifetime, and especially working for Justice White, who is a real American hero and icon. Um, I love working on Capitol Hill. I think it's a great place, particularly for young people to work. A lot of responsibility from a young age. Uh, a lot of things go on. Everyone wears many hats. Uh, you have to know policy, you have to know politics, you have to know strategy, you have to know communications. It's a really great experience. Uh, but nothing really compares to the experiences I've had in the executive branch. They've been more senior experiences, more recent in my career. 
And uh, clearly, of all the things I've done, the single most rewarding thing uh, was working, uh, running the Ebola response, working with amazing men and women uh, here in the United States and around the world to deal with the humanitarian crisis, uh, to try to save lives and try to make sure that disease didn't spread any further than it did. And so uh, that's an, really been an experience of a lifetime and something that, um, uh, you know, uh, really was unmatched. To uh, close out the interview, we always like to ask our guests, what is your personal definition of success and how, when you're addressing students like you will be tonight, how do you advise them to find success for themselves? Well, you know, my personal definition of success is doing what really has meaning to you and really being able to get up in the morning and think that what you're doing is important and consequential and, um, and really meaningful. And my advice to young people, um, as cliche as it is, is to uh, really put that first. I find too many young people understandably put economic considerations first, put stature considerations first, prestige. I have to go get that job because it's, it's the best job. It's what everyone else is competing for. I have to go get that job because it pays the most. And, and look, I understand those pressures, and we live in the real world, and they're real-world pressures. But I think that when you're in the early phase of your career, you have more flexibility than you're going to have in any other phase. You can, you're, you're less tied down. You have fewer commitments and obligations. And it's a time to really go for it, to really make that risky choice or that controversial choice and really pursue uh, that thing that you believe in and really uh, go for it. And I think that's my best advice to people. Trust your instinct, follow your passion, and uh, not, don't be afraid to kind of fail. Uh, don't be afraid to uh, come up short. Uh, and uh, you know, don't be afraid to live on the edge here a little bit. Um, and I think that's, that's just so important and such a critical element in people having the lives they want to have. I think it's, I think particularly highly credentialed people, people here at the five C's who really have great opportunities and great credentials often find those credentials handcuffs, often feel like they're under obligations because they have these credentials to, to get a certain kind of job and do a certain kind of thing. And that's a shame because really it should be liberating to you and really should offer you the chance to, to pursue what you want to pursue, to really find something that has meaning uh, to you. And I think those are the people who wind up being uh, the happiest in their lives and the happiest what they do with their lives. Well, thank you so much for that. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. So thank you, Ron, for joining us. And all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>